If you're new to our church, uh, let me explain what's about to happen. Uh, beginning a few years ago, we decided to take time in, in a couple of services a year where we would just simply let the scriptures that have been impacting the hearts of our people be read before the church. And so in what's about to happen is that there are two microphones up here. And if there is scripture that has, has impacted you over the last several days, several weeks, several months, that uh, you just want to be able to share, simply come up and, and when there's no one speaking at one microphone, you can speak at the other. You can wait upon the other, but just simply read the scripture. No commentary uh, desired in this. We just want to let the scripture be heard. So you don't have to context it. Just read the text. Give us the reference of where it's found that we, if it impacts us, that we can then go back and read it ourselves. And so uh, this is a special time. It's always uh, moving for me to hear what scripture is being read in the, in the privacy of, of the different hearts represented here in this room. So it does not matter who. Um, it just matters that you feel compelled by God to come up and read the passages that have impacted you in this moment. So I will begin by reading out of 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them uh, you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason then, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This time is yours. Simply come up and read. First Corinthians fifteen fifty five through fifty seven. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ecclesiastes three one and three b. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to tear down and a time to build up. Amen. <laughs> From Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh, my God, do not delay. Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. Though the, trig, though the fig tree does not bud, 
and though there are no grapes on the vines, and though the olive crop fails, and the produce, the fields produce no food, and though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Acts chapter 17. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men should seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Isaiah 40, 28. Have you never heard? Have you never understood? Lord is everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. Romans 8, 37 to 39. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I, am sh- and I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, the present nor the future, principalities or paddler, hi- the de- heights or the depths, nor anything else in all creation shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Psalm 37, 1 through 5. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land, cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. Philippians 4.13, I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. Psalm 131, Yahweh, my heart has no lofty ambition. My eyes don't look too high. I am not concerned with great affairs or marvels beyond my scope. It is enough for me to keep my soul tranquil and quiet, like a child in its mother's arms. My soul is as content as a nursing child. Israel, rely on Yahweh like a child, now and forever. Jeremiah 29, 11. Thanks. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, Plans to give you hope and a future. Isaiah 46, 9 to 11. <clears throat> Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of purpose from a far country, I have spoken truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, and I will surely do it. 
Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, know God, and he will make your paths straight. Job 42, 1 through 6. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. John 3, 6. Humans can re reduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth through spiritual life. Psalm 105, 1 through 4. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Let me conclude with this. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching, not neglecting your gift which was given you through the prophecy of the body of elders when laying their hands upon you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone, every time, uh, everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. <clears throat> so God, we just read and took this charge of reading the scriptures publicly. We know from this text that it says that it, it's going to help us watch our life and our doctrine closely so that we can live out the life you intended. So God, I just ask that in this time that scriptures read, that, that, that we will meditate upon them, that we'll consider them, we'll ponder them in our heart and allow you to do a mighty work inside of us. Thank you for what we've received from each other. Now, Lord, as we continue into the service, may the continued teaching of the word help us watch our doctrine and our life closely so that we may glorify you and bring glory to the kingdom, thus saving not only ourselves, but each other. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, it's good to see all of you here. It's a very special day with what's going to happen after this service. I appreciated the shout-out from Scripture that Chip Mershon read from Ecclesiastes. That was, that was fun. I did, you know, it's like I know Ecclesiastes pretty well, and I'm thinking, okay, when somebody reads that, where are they going to go? And then he's, he's like, oh, that was good. That was 
but it also keeps us in mind of what's happening today. I'm also going to address, uh, for those of you that have been around our church for any length of time, uh, the elephant in the room is, is when did you start wearing glasses? Um, let me provide a confession to you. About a month ago while preaching, I was reading off my tablet here, and then I picked up my Bible and went to read here, and I realized I couldn't read Jack on this page. So uh, I, I, it was time, I guess, at that moment, a realization that, that age has got the best of me, and it's time to get glasses. So I now will be wearing these pretty much from going forward, because when I look, I'm 2020 out there, but those of you up front or something right here, it gets a little bit more blurry. So some of you look better now that I have glasses, so that's good. But... Uh, <laughs> Having said that, uh, why don't we turn to Luke chapter 6, and uh, we're going to be continuing our series where we're looking in the book of Luke, particularly looking at how Jesus lived, how he did life, because he is our template for living. Uh, he modeled for us how to handle situations, how to handle people, and, uh, and, and what attitudes to have, how he engaged God. And so we're looking at those things, but utilizing the book of Luke to give us that direction. So today, we're going to look at, the title says it all, How to, Do You Love on Difficult People? How do you love on the most difficult of people. Now think about that. When, when you see, think the title, you're thinking, how do I love the most difficult person in my life? You've got, you've got a picture of who that is in your life, where they've probably hurt you, they've hindered you uh, in some way, and, and, and therefore, you, when I say loving on the most difficult person, you know exactly who that is. The challenging thing is, what if God was to reveal who that person is? And you might actually be that most difficult person for somebody else in this room. Perhaps I'm that most difficult person for somebody in this room. We don't know, but the realities are God usually forms our character through relationships with others. And probably even more so through the most challenging of relationships. In fact, I, I've got to a little bit of a confession here. Uh, this is a morning of confession. Um, but I, when I was a youth pastor, there was, um, basically, there were some kids you really liked and there were some kids you really didn't like. In fact, when I was a youth pastor, we would take students through uh, personality tests, you know, for those who are leaders that wanted to know more how to lead well. We take them through personality tests so they can know more about who they are and how God's designed them. We would also take them through what's called spiritual gift analysis, where they can kind of learn their spiritual gifts. And I'd always take it along with them. And it didn't matter what season of my life when I took those spiritual gift analysis, again, those gifts that God gives you uniquely to serve in the church, I always tested very high in certain areas, three or four areas, consistently didn't matter what season of my life, but I, it, didn't, it also didn't matter what season of my life that were my bottom two. And my bottom one uh, of those was the issue of mercy. Mercy was my lowest always whenever I would take these tests. Now, how does that make you feel that the senior pastor of the church you're attending is merciless? Don't you, yeah, what's, what that's going to do by admitting this is I probably won't get any counseling appointments from here on and, uh, or seeking me for advice. It might give me a lot of time in my, in my schedule. But 
Having said that, mercy is just something that doesn't come natural to me. Now, people that work with me or or around me say, now, you're not as merciless as you claim to be. You're pretty merciful. And they're usually fairly shocked that that tests out so low for me. And I can honestly tell you that that's just simply a work of God. Everybody here in this room, as maturity goes on, we, we begin to become more aware of our weaknesses or our faults, and we temper them. We filter them. We try not to let them be as exposed. And so when I'm feeling merciless, I usually don't operate merciless because I'm inviting God to help me in that moment because I would like to not act with mercy. And, and so you can all relate to this. So while being a youth pastor and you take those tests, God would usually provide some students to, to be a joy to keep me excited about being in youth ministry. Then there were other students that God would provide in the youth ministry that would make me wonder, why am I even doing this, right? And, and, and one of these students was a young man who um, every time I talked to him would argue. Like he just wanted to argue about everything. And he was pretty merciless towards me. And whenever I would teach, he would just say, he would literally say to my face, you know, you're not that great of a teacher. Um, I don't understand you. Should you be working with people older than us? And blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was just pretty, pretty difficult. Well, this young man, I need to tell you a little bit more of the story. He was no longer living with his parents. He was living with a family in our church who had three students that I really liked, you know. And, and they were being very kind and compassionate to him and it allowed it, the, him into their home. Well, I, I, even though I may not like this kid, I am pretty motivated individual to try to figure out how to make it work between myself and somebody that maybe isn't easy to get along with. And so I would work very hard with students like this young man to build a bridge. With him, I could not find any bridges except for one thing. He was a Denver Broncos fan just like I am, all right? Now, that means nothing to anybody here. It's not like I said the Dallas Cowboys or something like that. But for him and I, we both liked the Denver Broncos, and so did the family that he was living with. They were all Broncos fans. And so the Broncos made the playoffs, they decided to have a Denver Broncos party at their house, and I was invited to come. Part of what was going on in my private life at the time was that I was asking God, God, I know that I lack mercy. Teach me mercy. Help me to know how to be more merciful to other people. Dangerous prayer, right? If you know anything about what God does, is if you pray like that, God will teach you mercy. So one, when this party was coming up, I, realized, I had heard that he did not own a Broncos jersey, and we were all told to wear Broncos jerseys to this party. And I thought, okay, I have three of them. I have John Elway, I have Terrell Davis, and I have Clinton Portis. Why I had Clinton Portis, I have no idea. But uh, he went on to play for the Washington Redskins and basically okay career. But Terrell Davis and John Elway were very good players. So I'm looking at it, it's like, okay, I'm going to wear my John Elway jersey. You know, this is good luck, you know, because he was a great quarterback. And this is later after Elway's retired. So I thought, I'm going to wear that jersey, and I guess I'll take him one to wear. So I thought, well, I, I'll take him Clinton Portis. And I thought, no. I'll take him Terrell Davis because I, you know, I didn't know that he liked Terrell Davis. So I took the Terrell Davis jersey. And while en route to this house, 
God put a strong compelling upon my heart to give him the jersey. I was taking the jersey thinking he could wear it so that he could be like the rest of us in this party. Now, keep in mind, I do not like this kid, all right? I do not like this kid. There's nothing about this kid that warmed my heart. He was one of those kids that was very hard to love on. So I'm in route, and I'm having an argument with God that it's like, well, if, I, if you'd have told me before I left the house, I would have grabbed the Clinton Portis jersey <laughs> before going and handing him this jersey, right? So I get to the house, and I'm handing him this jersey. Here, you can, you can wear this for the party. And, and then it's like I felt God's like, do it, do it, and you can keep it. Wow, this is great, right? So we enjoyed the night. Everything's going really well, and I'm thinking maybe this is the breakthrough, right, God? This is the breakthrough that we can begin to see the, so, the, the seeds of Christ actually dwell in this kid. Well, you would think by the way I'm telling this story that that would have happened. It did not. In fact, the next Sunday, he was back at the same attitude. He was treating me the same way. Nothing changed. That kid, I have no idea where he's at in today's life. In fact, I don't even remember his name. But last year, when Terrell Davis made the Hall of Fame, it brought back the memory of that jersey because now that jersey is worth a lot of money. Clinton Portis. Why not Clinton Portis, right? So I'm thinking about that jersey, but then it reminded me of the kid. And it reminded me of why I prayed what I prayed before that, why God might have had me do this. And then guess what? I began to pray for this kid. I couldn't remember his name, but I'm praying for him all these years later. You see, that story was more of an acknowledgement that what you see on the surface might seem to be, like I'm sure that family thinks I'm a great guy because I gave him a jersey, a licensed official Terrell Davis Future Hall of Fame jersey. I, there's pain in that. Please, please hear that. And, and I'm sure they think highly of me, but they did not know that underneath, I despised that kid. I was hurt by that kid multiple times, to be honest. And I, this was a, a process of God doing some work inside of me that needed to be done. So in this journey of learning to become more merciful, God has usually taken difficult people to teach me that and to help me grow in an area that I need growth in. And it usually, again, comes through difficult people. Are you willing to listen to this message today? Because I'm going to guess that every single person here in this room has a difficult person in their life. Every single one of you has likely a difficult person in your life that is difficult to love, difficult to engage, especially in a manner that God is about to give you in this text. So let's go to the text. And Jesus is going to call you out right up front. For those of you, verse 27, for those of you who are listening, so are you listening? For those of you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, Turn to them the other, which, by the way, was just simply an insult. They weren't getting beat up. It was an insult to get a slap. 
And they're saying, let them continue to insult you. If someone takes your coat, which likely means that you owed them something, let them take beyond what you owed them by giving them your shirt. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Let's just stop there before I continue reading. That right there is a standard that I find to be almost impossible. Let's break it down. The first thing he says is, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Now, if, you know, if you've known other teachings about the New Testament, there's multiple Greek words for the word love, and, and they're varying levels of love. But the top and most intense level of love, in fact, it's called a lavishing love. It's, it's an all-in kind of love, is agape. Well, as you're guessing, that's the word love that he uses here in this text. You are to lavish love, use the most intense kind of love when loving somebody that you don't like. Somebody that is a difficult person in your life. In fact, the most difficult of people. Because it uses the term enemy. An enemy to you would be somebody that is trying to operate in such a way to undo your life. So they're, they're literally advocating for things that would cause you to fail. That's the kind of person he's talking about. So what does Jesus say is his standard of love is to lavish love on somebody who wishes to undo you. Anybody want to leave the room now? Because we're talking about an enemy. We're talking about somebody who would celebrates when you fail. But yet Jesus' standard of love is love that person. Lavish a love on them. In fact, in the, in the definition that was given by one commentarian, he said this, it's a genuine concern for someone irrespective of his or her attractiveness or of the likelihood that any reciprocation can happen. <clears throat> so basically, it's lavishing love. It's showing care. It's showing uh, intense action on behalf of the benefit of someone else even if they don't reciprocate. Love your enemies. Also, you see in this that when so mistreated by someone, instead of being angered by the unjust treatment by this enemy or this this difficult person, you become concerned for them. That's what love does. That in spite of being uh, treated poorly, you're concerned for them. And so you consider then, because you're going to lavish a love, you're going to consider then how you might help them in light of the source of attitude or actions towards you. So an enemy, an adversary is coming against you, and the love that Jesus talks about is agape, which says, listen, it's not about how you were mistreated. It's like there must be a reason why their attitude is the way it is. How can you help? How can you help deal with the issues that they must be dealing with? Let me share a story with you from my early days of being a youth pastor. So I'm graduated from college. I end up at a church north of Kansas City in the, in the state of Missouri, or Misery for those of us from Kansas, we'd refer to it as. So in this state, uh, in a town called Bethany, it was a town of about 8,000 people. Um, but it's like you leave Bethany, you leave 
population. There, it's not like Lidditz that has 10,000 people and you keep driving out of Lidditz and there's still thousands of people. No, this is 8,000 people and you leave and there's nothing. In fact, when you're going north out of Kansas City uh, and you come through Bethany, it's the first fast food you see for miles. And then you leave Bethany and there's no Walmart, no fast food until you get to Des Moines, Iowa, which is 80 miles north. So it's very rural um, town, but it, it's, it's a kind of a center for that rural part of America. And, and so when I come on staff at this church, it was a large church for such a small town. It was about 300 people. The pastor, knowing I'm a 22, wet behind the ears, young, new, budding pastor, I'd like to think of myself as, you know, with lots of talent that's going to have a bright future. I don't think he was thinking all that. But anyway, that's how I think of it when I was 22. So anyway, he tells me right up front on my first day, he goes, by the way, I want you to experience all the things that pastors experience. So I signed you up to be a chaplain at the hospital. I'm like, a chaplain at the hospital? What, is, what do they even do? I mean, again, keep in mind, I'm just out of college. I'm sure that existed before that time. I just never heard of it. So what does a chaplain do at, at, at the hospital? And he's like, well, there's, you're going to need this pager. And he gave me a pager. And, and when you see this number come up with this number at the end, then it tells you what you're running into. And I'm like, okay. So the number one at the end of that phone number means that there's just a family that's grieving and, and needs your help. Number two, if you see that, it's kind of an emergent situation and they need you for help in calming something down. I'm like, okay. I, he goes, just be available. Let God lead you. I'm like, all right. So I'll take that. So pager goes off on my first day on call, uh, and, and I get to the hospital, and I hear yelling, and they're, and they're saying, and I saw the number two was at the end of this. I said, so what can I do to help? And they said, we've got a patient that's having a manic situation. We need your help to calm them down. I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm not equipped for that. You know, I, I've been taught takedowns, but I, I'm not... I'm not sure how to help a patient that's out of control and not lucid. And, and so th that was a huge learning experience to try to learn to calm something down. That I mean, again, I'm 22 years old and I'm still learning. The second day, I'm literally, day one is this, day two, he hands me a three-by-five card. Because, again, we didn't have emails. Uh, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have GPSs. Uh, but we had three-by-five cards with addresses and names. He handed this 3 by 5 card, and he says, now I want you to learn visitation. This is a family that goes to our church, and I want you to go visit them. I said, okay. Is there anything I should know uh, before going over? And he goes, well, the last time I tried to visit him, he slammed the door in my face. I'm like, okay. So day two of being a pastor, I am now going to have to go visit somebody where the senior pastor did not succeed. Right? So I've got to go up to the store. So I get in my car. I have to look up on a map because we didn't, again, have a smartphone to see where this street is and to find this house. So I get in my car. I figure out where I got to go. I go to the house. I knock on the door and there's silence. I thought, oh, good. I'm relieved. I don't have to, I don't have to talk to anybody. But then I hear heavy footsteps coming to the door. Then this man that is about a foot and a half taller than me, his shoulders are about a foot wider than mine, and he has this deep baritone voice, and he goes, when he opens the door, and he goes, what do you want? I'm like, um, I'm the new youth pastor at the church, and 
I'm here to visit with you. He goes, why? And I'm thinking, I really don't have an answer for that. I don't remember my answer, but I came up with something, I'm sure. And he must have been thinking, this guy is so immature. But anyway, so as we're talking, you know, he kept being gruff, and I kept trying to be kind, and I was like, God, help me, because in those moments, you don't, you're not trained for it. You're saying, God, help me, God, help me, and then finally he says, he throws open the screen door, because we're talking through the screen this whole time, and finally he throws open the screen door, and he says, come in. So I come in. He says, you sit there. I, I sat there. No <laughs> argument. He sat in his chair, and then I happened to look around that there's a lot of dead animals on his wall. So it didn't take much for me to figure out that there's a gun in the house and, uh, and the fact that he's a hunter. But right next to his chair was a stuffed pheasant. Now, growing up where I come from in Kansas, pheasant hunting was what I grew up doing. So I said, oh, I'm from Kansas, and I grew up pheasant hunting. And he says, well, where at? And when I told him my hometown, Phillipsburg, he goes, he started laughing. He goes, I grew up where my dad would take me on pheasant hunting trips to your hometown. He knew, and he even talked about the cafes or where to eat in that town. And he lit up. He started talking about all his, his hunting and so on. And, and uh, so we started to talk, and the next thing I know, I'm invited for dinner. It's awesome. When you're 22 years old, living on your alone, alone for the first time, I was eating a lot of mac and cheese and frozen pizzas, and so uh, having a warm-cooked meal by somebody else was great. So I stayed for dinner. And we were laughing and talking. They had three kids in the house, and we were enjoying each other. And, uh, and then I'm looking at the pictures on the wall, and I notice that there's another kid in the picture. And I asked, I said, so... Um, who's this child? And they got silent at the table. Six months before that dinner that I'm sitting there, there had been a car accident where their oldest child was driving, and the, the one that was missing was also in the car. Serious car accident happens, the younger child dies, and the older one that was sitting at the table had only been home for a few weeks by that point. Now all of a sudden I kind of understood the anger found out later that the reason why he slammed the door in the face of the pastor, because the pastor was trying to follow up on them after the accident. And he, he only handled his grief through anger. He didn't want to hear that God loved him. You see, there's often stories behind a person's attitude before you. You may not even be the object of their anger. You're just receiving it. That was a lesson I learned there in that moment. And so I began to realize that, you know, sometimes these unloving, loving uh, people that, are, that you don't want to spend time with, there's usually a reason why they're so difficult. So I became very close to this family. It was funny the next day when the pastor, how did it go? And I said, well, I ended up having dinner with him. And he just looked at me like, how did that happen? But, you know, I look back, and to this day, they, this family still texts me at Thanksgiving, at Christmas. They consider themselves my Missouri family. They've moved on. Their family has grown. All those kids are now having grandchildren, and I am part of the family, to which I am grateful. But it required moving past the attitude. Jesus also says it's not just loving these unlovely people, it's not just an agape thing, but you actually are charged. At the end of verse 28, he says this, bless them. Bless the one who actually mocks you. 
or curses you. I mean, think about that. Not only are you supposed to love on them, consider what, how you can help them, consider what might be going on, and you lavish upon them, even if it's not reciprocated. But Jesus goes on to say, now bless them. Bless when they mock you. Bless when they curse you. When I was looking this up to make sure I understood how strong of a word Jesus was using here, I, I was able to basically take the definitions off and write this statement. It says this, To bless someone is to bestow in word or action upon someone good things that would benefit that individual. To bless someone is to bestow in word or action a good action towards them that would benefit them going forward. So if somebody hurls an insult at you or mocks you or curses you with words, the response that Jesus says is, consider in that moment how you might, either by your word or your actions, give them something that will enhance them. Make it good. They're better off for that moment going forward because you just benefited them by a blessing. Now, this is again where I say, I'm a guy who when trash talk happens on a basketball court or on a baseball field, it gets my competitive juices going. Doesn't happen anymore because I'm not on the basketball court or the baseball field. But when I was a, at this age, I was still very involved in sports. And it's like if somebody throws a word that curses at you or mocks you, it immediately gets that competitive nature that you want to crush them and push them down. But Jesus is saying when somebody mocks you or curses you, you're supposed to bless them in response which would require in my life, in that moment, while I'm feeling competitive or angry or retributive in, in spirit, I'm supposed to think of how I can benefit them. Anybody else finding that like almost an impossibility by your nature? I think even if you're not competitive, I think even if you're not male, I think even women don't like when they're being cursed at or being mocked at. It, it hurts the core. But Jesus is saying, my standard of love is to lavish love on such people and to bless them while they're in the midst of cursing you. Think of how your words or your actions can benefit them and give them good. Man, Jesus, this is a standard I don't know that I can live up to. At the end of verse 28, he says something else. So not only are we supposed to lavish a love on them and, and consider our care for them, but we're also supposed to bless them and benefit them. And then he says, pray for them. Now, some of you say, oh, I do that. I pray for those who mistreat me. Yeah, I pray that, God, you will teach them how rotten they are and the way they treated me. God, I pray that, that the fruit of those actions will come upon them and they'll experience the, the retribution of God. God, I pray that they will fall when they think so highly of themselves. God, I pray that they will become humble as they need it so much. I don't think, based on what Jesus has just said here, that's the kind of prayers he's referring to when praying for your enemies. I believe he's saying, pray, God, how can I bless them? God, how can I love on them the way you would love on them? That's 
really difficult. So I'm supposed to lavish love on them. I'm supposed to bless them when they mock me. Somehow they're supposed to be benefited by me. And now I'm supposed to pray for their well-being. Pray for their blessing. Pray, pray for them to succeed. Ooh, that's tough. Let's continue on. Jesus goes on to say, you know, I know these are difficult standards. In fact, he's going to outlay here, right in the text, the world standard compared to what he's just spoken. So let's look at the world standard that Jesus speaks to. Verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And, to you, and if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment. What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But I tell you, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked, and to the wicked, and therefore be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So, the world standard as compared to His is pretty simple. Love those who love you back. I mean, that's a pretty easy standard. I will love on you if I think that I've got a good shot that I'm going to get love in return. Again, go back to those kids. I, I remember loving some kids really easily because they showed so much love back. The difficult ones to love were the ones that really just kind of frankly annoyed you. Love on them even if they don't love you back. But the world says no. Love if you're going to get love back. In fact, is this even love at all when you really consider it? If love is conditional and it's merely about what you might get in return, is that even love? It's a good question. Love is risk. That's reality of what it is. Love is always risk. So why would I offer it to someone who might and likely crush my spirit? Who wants to love on someone when they think they might be crushing your spirit? You try to love on them, and all they do is spew anger and resentment towards you. Why would you want to love on that kind of a person? But love would stay through if it's Jesus' standard. But the world says, nope, if they're not going to love you back, it's okay to cut it off. Then he says, well, what does it look like to then be good, according to the world, to be good to other people? And all the world says, well, be good to those who will be good back to you. In other words, you should calculate your good acts based on what kind of return you might expect from them. You hearing that? That the world standard is be good to those who will be good back to you. So therefore, you must calculate very carefully where you want to send your good because you only want to send it where you know you'll get a return. In fact, how I see this being played out, even in Christendom, is that many of our service projects, and I'm putting that in quote, many of our service projects in society have turned into fundraisers, subtly teaching our young people that when you serve, you serve when there's a return. This bothers me. Why can't we just go and serve as part of the body of Christ and not expect anything in return? Not have any kind of publication? Hey, we just went and served the community, and we put an article in the paper about it. 
oh, we were, we're going to go serve in the community. Let's, let's then collect money for it. That doesn't go to the community. Or how about, let's just provide service projects and offer some kind of accommodation or badges that we can celebrate you for being such a good servant. Now, I recognize that service projects are a means of teaching people to serve. And I recognize that in certain organizations, yes, there are acknowledgments to having served. But that's not where it should land. Serving needs to become part of the DNA, not for reciprocation purposes. So the world says, love when you, if you're going to get love back. Do good if you'll get good back. And then it says in verse 34, and you should only give unless you're going to be receiving back. Why is it that multi-billion dollar organizations get a walk out onto a professional sports field, hold up a check that's for $20,000 and get applause? They have billions. And a $20,000 check is walked out on the field for giving to some humane society or some club that's helping and benefit the society. And that's good, but why do we need to walk on the field and praise the organization that gave what's equivalent to a $20 bill out of a back pocket? You see, we're taught in society that we'll give as long as you can kind of scratch my back in return, that I can get acknowledgement before others. Why can't we just give and let it be the gift? Why do we need acknowledgement? Again, it's easier to think in terms of mercy if you have a realistic view of you. Think about it. We're talking about difficult people in our life, and, and Jesus is lifting up a standard of what it means to love, to pray for, and to bless those who are difficult in your life. And we struggle with it because we do not find them worthy of that kind of, that's the good side of us. Why would we give our best to those who mistreat us? How many of you have asked, over in your lifetime, asked God to bless you, to, for good things to happen in your life? Meanwhile, you're not even tithing to God. You might not even have been going to church during that time. There's not even worship coming from you, but yet you ask. I can point to a season of my life where I did not tithe. I gave, but it was very small portions, and it was not first fruits, it was after fruits. And even then, that could be taken if something came up that was more important. But yet, during that long season of my life, I can tell you that I asked God for blessing. I can tell you I asked for God's love. I can tell you I even asked for his mercy. And I can tell you that I asked for tremendous amounts of grace. And I can tell you I asked for him to benefit me. And I can also tell you that God blessed me. God showed his love. God did bring benefit to my life. God did grant me health and success. And God granted blessings in my family. God gave lavishly to me even when I was robbing from him. When you start looking at it like that, then you realize, I I've been given a tremendous amount of mercy. I was not deserving of how God answered those prayers. I'm not deserving and worthy of the, the continued blessing in my life. In fact, I can say that if anything, 
I should be dismissed from some of the things that I've been given over my lifetime because I'm not worthy of it. I've been given a tremendous amount of mercy that when I was at my lowest in the way I was giving to God, God lavished love upon me. I needed to see that. In fact, I've discovered, when I was thinking through, what are the attitudes inside of me that keep me from wanting to be merciful? Why is it that I do struggle with being merciful towards others? Yes, it's an aspect of I do not recognize the fact that I am received so much mercy, but what are the attitudes that keep me from experiencing mercy? And, and I realized that, that there are several attitudinal phrases that I can give you that you'll probably relate to. So these are the barriers to mercy. And it's just anecdotal here, but barriers to mercy. Here they go. That is mine. That is mine. That is not theirs. How dare they make plans for what is mine? How dare they make co-op uh, statements of saying, I deserve that from you or I need that from you. That's mine. We hear that from children all the time. They don't want to share. That's mine. That's why they don't share. We get older, we still think it. We just have become more sophisticated in the way we say it. It's still mine. We just have other reasons why we wouldn't lend it or let somebody use it. Or we think this phrase, this one's common inside me, that's not fair. Now, I said that all the time to my mom. That's not fair. She's over here, by the way. That's not fair. Or, or when now that I'm a leader and now that I'm a leader in the church, I, I, I see this when somebody is really screwed up. And if I would try to bless them or do good to them in spite of how they've treated us as a church or as a leadership, I think, well, if you show goodness to them, that lets them think that they win. They think they win. And that they were right and that they had the high ground and we did not or I did not. Or if, again, from the leadership perspective, sometime even as a parent, they need to learn a lesson. So instead of being merciful, it's about teaching them a lesson. They need to learn from this. So I'm going to tit for tat. They treated me poorly, so I'm going to treat them poorly. I'm going to let them feel the ramifications and the fruit of their bad attitude. Or that will teach them. Ha! I said what I wanted to say. They needed to hear that. That will teach them. Anybody hearing me? Or they need to be held accountable. There's a place for that, granted. But often we use that phrase to permit our bad attitude. They must be accountable for their bad attitude or their poor actions or their poor words. Those are the barriers inside of me when I think of why I don't operate merciful. Why? You can underline all those things and it comes back to one thing. I really have a high value for justice. I have a high value for justice and being right and making sure that what is right is what's happening. And mercy can sometimes be in contrast to justice. But Jesus' standard demands more than that. He doesn't want us to be loving or blessing or giving according to reciprocation or receiving in return. No, he wants us to be merciful because we've received so much of it. 
We want to, he wants us to give then out of what we've experienced, which then leads to this. So if you want to become more merciful, it really begins with this, knowing that you have been that difficult person in God's life and have received tremendous amounts of mercy. It begins with you acknowledging before God, I have been that ridiculously difficult individual in God's life, and yet he has loved on me, he has blessed me, he has been good to me, and he has given to me. When you realize that, that I've been that difficult person to God, and yet he's shown you mercy, then you can then acknowledge, I have received so much mercy, so how can I not be merciful to others around me, especially that difficult person. And then lastly, and this is where that justice side speaks to me, because he says here in the text, he says, then when you are loving, verse 35, when you're loving your enemies, you're doing good to them, and you lend to them without expecting anything in return, then your reward will be great. And notice it's not saying here on earth. It says, and you will be children of the Most High because he is the one that is kind to the ungrateful, which you've been ungrateful. You are the one that he's been kind to when you were wicked. And yet God continues to be merciful. So the charge is then be merciful just as your father was merciful to you. Let the fruit of what happens in this context, not only in your life, but in the life of the difficult person, let the fruit of that be dictated by God, not by you trying to control it. Let God do the speaking. Let's pray. God, I, 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 sit, I stand here under judgment, knowing that I have, I have I many times failed this text. And there's probably many times I'm not even aware of I've failed it. Jesus, you've established a standard that I know that I have benefited from. But now, Lord, I just pray that you will give each of us the strength to admit our need and our experience of mercy from you so that we can then find strength and mercy and being merciful to others. Help us to be a more humble people, a more gracious people, and a more merciful people to those who mistreat us. In Jesus' name.